Father, we want to thank you uh, that Christ is the worthy one. And uh, we, we want to uh, just praise you and thank you for him. Uh, we, we sing uh, the praise of heaven, that he is the one who's worthy of all our praise and, and adoration, for he uh, willingly came to die in our place and paid the price to purchase us and to make us your people. And we thank you for this incredible privilege to be together praising you in your very presence, Lord. We thank you. And we thank you for your word now. And we, we long that we would uh, feel it to be a living and active word in our lives. Uh, we pray that you would grant us uh, the grace to hear and to uh, obey. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, how will the kingdom of God grow? How will it come and, and transform the whole world? You know, I guess isn't that what we're looking forward to? Is, is the kingdom of God coming in its fullness? Put every, every wrong to right? Uh, bringing back in, in a world of harmony and peace and joy, of perfect fellowship and communion with God, a place with no more suffering and disease and death. I mean, how will that kingdom of God come? How will it transform the world? And how, how does the kingdom of God grow? And what part do the churches play in that process of the kingdom of God coming? It's a subject really that has um, generated much discussion, many books, many conferences, because it's quite obvious to those in the Western countries that the church, the Christian church, is in decline. You don't need me to tell you this. Uh, you know this is the case. Uh, certainly in the country of my birth in Wales, there was a time when over 90% of the, of the population would attend some church on a Sunday. Isn't that incredible? But of course, those days are long gone. We, we are now in a, a time where church attendance in the UK is, is somewhere between 4 to 6%. And uh, people estimate that there's probably less than 2% attending an evangelical church, a church where uh, we hope that the Bible would be opened and the gospel clearly proclaimed. Less than 2% would attend a church like that in the UK today. And so, of course, this has generated a huge amount of, of thinking and praying and, and, and books and conferences to, to say, well, how can we reverse this trend of church decline? What can we do? Uh, for a couple of decades now, people have said, well, look at business. Business is successful. We need to learn the lessons of business and of marketing strategies. And, uh, and some have taken that approach. Pick a target audience. Tailor everything towards your target audience. And uh, you know, make sure that there's lots of parking. Uh, make sure that there's a, a commitment to excellence and, and putting on a great show. And then they will come. Disney packs is packed out. Let's follow Disney and then we'll pack out. Others have said, well, um, we need to take the charge uh, on issues of social concern. If we are at the forefront of society of dealing with issues of deprivation, uh, of uh, poverty, of homelessness, then uh, the kingdom of God will really advance. If the people see that we, we're serious as Christians about transforming the world, then churches will grow. Then the kingdom of God will really grow. Others have said, well, we need power evangelism. Uh, we need to see again the days of signs and wonders. If we, if we put on healing crusades, if we, if we see uh, uh, mass events where we are uh, uh, looking to God to do great miracles uh, in our midst, then we will see the kingdom of God grow. 
Well, others have said, well, we, we need to appeal more to the, the aspirations of people. Uh, there, there are many churches in America where I currently live which, which are doing this. They're, they're appealing to people's uh, highest aspirations, maybe to, to become more successful, to become wealthier, to, uh, to, you know, to have a happy marriage. And, and who doesn't want that? And uh, you know, to, to, to push out in lots of ways. And, and they write books like, you know, Your Best Life Now. And people buy it in millions. And they fill out, you know, basketball stadiums with preaching like this. Other people have started saying, well, we need to embrace really a community that, that will listen to each other's doubts. Uh, let's embrace every position. Let's, let's start a dialogue. Let's have a conversation. And then we will see churches grow again. And I've, I've no doubt that some of these strategies will indeed grow crowds of people. But the question is, will it actually grow Christian churches? And will it be the means that God uses to grow his kingdom? How does the kingdom of God grow? It's an important topic to get clear on, isn't it? And that's why I want us to look now to Mark 4. So if you want to open your Bibles again and turn to Mark chapter 4 in the church Bibles, I think it was page 1005 if you don't have one with you. I have to tell you that I'm actually using a slightly different version. I'm using the English standard version. And so the words might look slightly different, but... Uh, you can still follow along in your church Bibles. I think it's very difficult for us to uh, imagine and, and recapture the, uh, the atmosphere of this time that Mark records. The Jewish people had been longing uh, and waiting for hundreds of years to see God fulfill his ancient promises to restore their kingdom. And there they were, they were under Roman occupation. They were subjugated, they were suffering, and they were longing for this to happen. And under this environment, uh, nationalistic dreams had grown up with all this talk of the kingdom of God, of a, of a Messiah coming. And so you can imagine how explosive it was when they heard that there was this uh, man from Galilee called Jesus and he was preaching this. Uh, Mark records at the beginning of his gospel, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. I mean, those were explosive words. Those were powerful words. And as you read the early chapters of Mark, crowds Followed wherever Jesus went. This, this caused a massive interest. The kingdom of God. And you see it there in chapter 4 verse 1. Jesus was mobbed by crowds in the early years. Verse 1. A very large crowd gathered about Jesus. Now some I guess came to see miracles. But I think many came to hear about this kingdom of God. When would it happen? How would it happen? How would the kingdom of God come about? Would it be a, a political revolution? Would it be people power? Uh, what, what is taking place? What's going to go on? And I'm sure that nothing would have prepared them for what they received. As they came and, and, and met with the crowds and they saw Jesus in a boat and he's sitting down in a boat and he starts telling them stories. Stories about seed. It's not a great political strategy, is it? David Cameron is not trying this one, I don't think. None of them are. Jesus tells stories. Look at verse 3, 4 verse 3. Listen, a farmer, a sower, went out to sow. Now isn't that a bit strange? Disciples weren't too sure about it either. Look at verse 10. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. They're saying to Jesus, well, what are you doing, Jesus? I mean, what, what, is, what do all these stories mean? When I uh, went to Phoenician High School in Cardiff, 
uh, we were taught in religious education that a parable was a kind of a basic story from everyday life that enabled sort of simple people uh, to, to understand what Jesus was saying. But that's only partly right, isn't it? Uh, the parables are far more than that. Yes, there were stories from everyday life, but the point is that there was an underlying truth that not everybody got. There was something to these stories that was deeper that not everybody understood. And getting this deeper meaning was not about getting a, a, a tertiary education, a degree. It was not about having uh, smarts. It was about spiritual responsiveness. Look at verse 11. He said to them, to the disciples, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside Everything is in parables, so that. And then Jesus quotes uh, words written in the Old Testament by uh, in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. See, as Jesus looks at this large crowd, and let's be honest, when we see large crowds, we get quite excited, don't we? Jesus wasn't quite so excited to see a large crowd. He knows that it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a a huge, significant thing happening. He looks out at the crowd and he says, well, this is a crowd that's just like the crowd around Isaiah's time, 800 years before. God gave Isaiah a pretty tough job, didn't he? Uh, He said to him, I want you to go and preach for me, Isaiah, and your preaching is going to be a colossal failure Nobody is going to listen to your message. Can you imagine that? Your, your boss calls you into work or you're, as a student, applying for a job and you go in, here's, here's the job, this is what you're going to do. And by the way, before you start, you're going to be a complete failure. Oh, thanks a lot. That's encouraging, isn't it? That's what God tells Isaiah. In fact, his preaching is not going to result in repentance. It is, in fact, going to result in hardness of heart that's going to bring in the judgment of God upon his people. And this is the reason that we are told Jesus speaks in parables. Jesus looks out at the crowd and he realizes it's going to be a very mixed crowd. There's going to be a whole host of different responses in the crowd. And he uses these parables as a kind of a spiritual filter. Now, isn't that your experience as you talk to people? You know, you tell some people about Jesus, that he came. The, the sinless life that he lived, uh, the, the, the sin-bearing death upon the cross, that he rose again on the third day, that, that he gives new life, that he's, he's returning again to judge the world, and now's the time to repent and believe. And some people hear that, and they see a wonderful Savior, and they say, oh, this is fantastic news. Can, can, I, can I have this? And of course, you sell other people this news, and how do they respond? <sighs> Yawn, boredom. They don't see anything in it. They they see it as nothing. We see that, don't we? Different responses. Well, Jesus saw that as he spoke before the crowd. So what is the secret of the kingdom? What is this divine information of how the kingdom of God is going to really come about and change and transform the whole world? Well, it's all tied to this this picture of the seed, isn't it? It's all linked to the seed. And if we put all the, the seed parables together and see what Jesus is saying as a whole... 
then we have to say that Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of God is going to come in a way that was different to how they expected it to come. The, the Jewish people expected one big cataclysmic day of the Lord to come and it would be sorted there. But Jesus says, no, it's going to happen in three phases. This is how the kingdom of God is going to come about. There's going to be first a, a, a phase of planting as uh, the Messiah arrives incognito. Uh, just spreading the seed of the kingdom in the hearts of a few disciples. And then there's going to be a time of growth where uh, the seed is multiplied through their testimony and it's fertilized into other people's lives. And eventually uh, this good news is going to spread throughout the whole world. And then thirdly, there's going to be a time of reaping. And that will be the decisive day when the Messiah returns and the harvest is brought in and the kingdom comes in all its fullness. The glorious kingdom that the prophets had longed for will come in its fullness. This is how the kingdom of God is going to come. So how is the kingdom of God to arrive? It's all tied in the picture of the seed, doesn't it? What is this vital instrument that will bring about the transformation of the whole world? Do you want to transform the whole world? Well, what is it that's going to do that? Well, there it is in verse 14. The sower sows the word. Wow. That's the main point today. If I've lost you, if if you're already asleep, wake up, nudge your neighbor and write this down. My point for you today, I've got one point. God's word does the work. That's my point today. God's word does the work. That's what verse 14 is telling you. What's really going to change this world? Is it politics? Is it a new economic structure? Is it science? Is it philosophy? Is it medication? Is it, is it, is it materialism? What's going to really change this world? None of those. It's this. God's word. God's word does the work. Now I'm stressing this. Because I think that we are so tempted to doubt it. You know, it's tough, isn't it? If you're a Sunday school teacher or if you're involved with uh, uh, the uniform groups or youth ministry or at any single level or if you've tried sharing the gospel, sometimes you get quite discouraged because you've spread the word and nothing seems to be happening. But we need to see from God's word that this really is the agent that will change people's lives and will transform the world and bring in God's kingdom. Now, having read Mr. Balfour's book, it was quite a long time to read it, I have to say, but it was a fine read. Having read that, I know that this is a conviction and a core view that this church has had for 200 years, that God's word does the work. And so I know I'm teaching you nothing new, But it's always good to go back to the basics, isn't it? It's always good to remind ourselves because we do get discouraged. We do, we are tempted to give up. And I think there's these three things that sometimes cause us to uh, give up and and, and doubt this. And they are linked to these seed parables. And the first thing that we are, the reason we're tempted to to doubt that God's word does the work is firstly rejection. And that's what the parable of the sower tells us about. It tells us this, that God's word does the work despite rejection. See, as Jesus is preaching to this crowd, he's like a sower casting out seed. And he knows that there's going to be different responses as he's preaching. 
the, the four main reactions are likened to different types of soils here, aren't they? And the truth is, it's the same as we speak God's word today. It's true this morning. The reality is that each of these four responses will take place this very morning to, to the preaching of God's word. There's four different reactions, but the truth is that it's two basic ones. There's acceptance or rejection. So let's think about rejection. The first three types are all rejection, I believe. As God's word is taught, Jesus teaches that there'll be those like the hard soil of the path in verse 15. They're hardened against God's word. Now maybe the hardening is um, intellectual pride. He doesn't believe me to accept me. He uh, doesn't really expect me to believe that, does he? Or maybe it's moral obstinacy. You know, Well, no one's going to tell me how to live. No one's going to tell me how to live my life. I'm not going to believe what the Bible says. Or maybe it's self-righteousness. People say, me, a sinner? How dare you? How dare you? Or maybe it's just bored indifference. And I think there's so much of this in, in, in America and uh, in Britain. Just bored indifference. It's like, oh, Bible, church, how dull. What's, what's on the telly? What's on the telly? And people in the crowd were just like this. They'd come to hear his word, and yet really it just bounced off them like water off a duck's back. It's, it's as if their hearts are coated in, in spiritual Teflon. Nothing sticks. Uh, a few years ago, I, I did a Bible study with my neighbor uh, in Spokane in our first house. He owned, uh, still does, owns, he owns the bar downtown, a, a pool club there. And uh, we got to know him, and... Uh, I remember we were chatting together as our daughters were learning to swim, drowning slowly in the pool, and they're now fine swimmers. And we're just chatting away, and I just said to my neighbor, I said, well, you know, sometimes I just sit down with people, and we just kind of read through the Bible. Would you be interested in, you know, meeting together with me and reading through Mark's gospel? And he went, <laughs> okay. So we started meeting and reading through Mark together, and we got to Mark chapter 4, and I'll never forget it. We, we got to this very section in Mark chapter 4, and we got to this hard path. And before I could say a thing, he tapped the, he tapped the Bible, and he said, that's me. That's me. He looked pleased with himself. He wasn't going to be taken in by all this kingdom of God stuff. And I said, well, hang on, before you get too pleased about that, notice who's behind this defiant, cynical attitude. Look at verse 15. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. I said, do you find that a little disturbing? Well, others are like the rocky soil, verse 16. And it represents really only a superficial decision. An initial enthusiasm, I guess, that just doesn't last. I guess you've all been to sort of the meetings where, in a sense, the, the, the band's been kicking and and the speaker's been motivational and awesome, and the, the message has rung out, and people you know, kind of just throng down the front, and, and some people are not quite sure why they're there, but in a sense, they're just getting a reaction almost to the way that you, you know, watch a sentimental movie. You feel kind of a, a gushy feeling, and they've responded in the moment, and someone has said, well, you're saved, and, and, the, and, and they, there's a joy. There's a joy at first. But getting away from that atmosphere, when things start getting hard, when, when they face opposition from the family and, and, their, and their friends are saying, you did what? You don't really believe that, do you? you know, Christians are boring and square. Why would you want to go and do that? What, what? Well, when, when there's some cost 
to the gospel, well then, they start withering and dying. They have no root. A big response, but then they start falling away. They, they stop coming to church. Uh, they're there at first, and then they start coming with decreasing frequency until you don't see them again. And I'm sure you've, you've seen this, haven't you? I've seen this many times uh, as a preacher. I've seen people respond with joy, and it's such a thrill. You're praising God, and, and then that heartache as they, as they slowly slink away. The final response to rejection is there in verse 18. Uh, it's the response of, uh, of the seed sown in thorny ground. And really it's the response of a distracted disciple. There's some enthusiastic start. And unlike the superficial response, they don't seem to go away. They're still there. Maybe you're here in church today. You're, you're coming along to church. Uh, not disappeared. There's some sort of Christian identity but as time goes on, the truth is that Christ becomes less and less significant in your life. In fact, to most people, you look like you're doing everything that everybody else does. There's absolutely no discernible difference in your life, except that you come along and clock in and clock out at church. And distractions, uh, distractions abound in life, don't they? It doesn't matter what stage of life you're at, there's things that can distract you. In young people, it can be pursuing educational goals or... Uh, sporting achievements. In, in America, uh, all the kids are driven around everywhere by their parents to sports so they can get you know, grants to go to college. So that's the big thing. Or it can be sexual attraction that can distract young people. Or in midlife, well, the, the distractions sort of uh, change a bit. Maybe it's uh, financial stress. Maybe it's family responsibilities. Maybe it's career ambition. In old age, well, they continue there, don't they? There's a preoccupation with health. There's not one part of your body that doesn't ache at some point. You're quite happy to show everybody the, the list of medications that you've got. Or maybe it's the garden. Or maybe it's the grandchildren. Well, distractions abound in life. Look at verse 18 to 19. Others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Distracted disciples exist in a state of arrested spiritual development. Now we mustn't be naive then as the word of God is proclaimed. We will see all of these reactions in fact, here's a discouraging thing. 75% of the response is rejection. And it could all be very depressing, couldn't it? Very off-putting to, well, why bother spreading the word? But the point of this parable is it's a wonderful truth that despite rejection, God's word will bring a bumper harvest. That's the point. That's what verse 20 says, doesn't it? A crop that is 30 or 60 or even 100 times what was sown? Now, isn't that encouraging this morning? I, I am often tempted to doubt this very thing. And if you've been involved in ministry in any sort of way, whether it's Christianity Explored or, or Bible studies, I'm sure you've had a moment where you're tempted to, to, to doubt that it's worthwhile. If you ever look at a seed, <laughs> last week we were with our family and Dad said, Let's, uh, there's a fantastic place which is a, 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 um, a center where they have uh, all the different seeds 
kept in store, a, a museum of seeds. Would you like to go and have a look? Well, how tempting that was. <laughs> you know, oh, look, a little seed. Oh, and another one. There's not much to seeds, are there? It's, it's a bit dull, seeds, I have to say. They're a bit dull. And, and you know, you get some sunflower seeds, you, you throw them on the ground, and most of them get eaten by the birds, and nothing really seems to happen. But the point is, if one of those sunflower seeds goes in the soil, you watch. In our garden in Spokane, we, we have sunflowers that grow to be eight foot tall from one seed. And the head is so huge, there's over 2,000 seeds in the head by the time the, the summer's at an end. One little seed. Isn't that amazing? And the truth is the, the, the Bible can, can look puny and dry and insignificant, but the point is here, it is powerful. It, it is the mighty agent that God uses to, to change and transform people's lives. It is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ, it says in Romans. God's word does the work despite rejection. Just think about your own life. Just think about the impact in your own life today. We mustn't be put off by rejection, but keep scattering God's word all over the place. It's amazing where God's word can be hidden and found. I have a friend who uh, went through college as a hardened atheist. He was completely antagonistic. He wasn't just sort of a, you know, happy to let other people go. He, hate, he hated Christianity. He was a definite atheist. And he went on a backpacking trip at the end of his college experience. And uh, he was in the Philippines. He was in a youth hostel. He was pretty low. And he found a, a, a Catholic prayer book in French. Now, I, I didn't know this, but, you know, even the prayer book, the Catholic prayer book, includes scripture. And luckily, my friend could, could read French. And he was just at a low point, and he started flicking through this Catholic prayer book. And as he read the, the, the biblical scriptures, God brought conviction of sin in his heart and saved him right there in the Philippines. Isn't that amazing? You don't know as you scatter this word what it may accomplish, what it may achieve. And he's now a pastor in a church in London. We must not lose heart. In fact, we need to keep speaking God's word into people's lives. But there's another reason, isn't it, that we're tempted to doubt that God's word does the work. And that's because of delay. And I think that's what the parable of the growing seed is about in verses 26 to 29. See, what does the farmer do there? Well, all he does, let's read it, verse 26. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. What does he do then? Well, he goes to bed, he sleeps, and he gets up the next day and has his breakfast and has his special K, and off he goes. And what does he do to the seed? Nothing. He just goes off and does his work. And he comes back at the end of the next day and he looks on the ground. What, what does he see? Nothing, nothing. In fact, he goes to bed again. He gets up. And this goes on for days, in fact, weeks. It can be even months, and nothing really appears to be going on. And yet, all the while, the seed is is germinating and growing under the ground. Roots are pushing down and, and, and there'll come a point where slowly and imperceptibly a little, a little leaf pokes up through the ground. Now what does this? Not the farmer. It's the seed. It's the seed that does this. The word does the work. And we need to see here the effects of the word are not instantly obvious. There's a delay. In fact, 
The truth is, the instant response to God's word is quite often the most unhelpful one to gauge it on. We need to look for the longer fruit. We mustn't be discouraged as we see apparent delay of the growth of God's kingdom in people's lives. You know, when you work hard at studying, uh, you, you, you kind of work hard, you're doing kids' ministry. You're working hard as a parent maybe every day to try and open the Bible over breakfast time with your children and that daily wrestle and fight to get your kids to listen as you try and read something from the Bible. And uh, you wonder, well, what's going on? It can be discouraging, can't it? Uh, There are three brothers in the church where Shiona grew up in Glasgow, the Maxim brothers. Two of the brothers, uh, Michael and Chris, appeared to be very hard soil. There was a time when Sean and I used to uh, do the youth ministry and uh, used to preach there on the Sundays. And I used to look out when I was preaching and, and be, you know, be praying in advance, the Lord would do something in, in people's lives, including uh, Chris and Michael's lives. And you'd stand up and preach, and there they would sit like this. They were either stony-faced like this or they were sleeping. Because really all they wanted to do was just to, they loved to party, they loved to get drunk. Uh, go out to nightclubs, and they would be dragged to church in the morning, and they would be sleeping over their hangovers, or just sitting there with complete bored indifference for years and years and years. But you know that the great miracle has happened. Hardened soil became good despite much delay and seeming wasteful sowing in their lives. Suddenly, a harvest has come. When we were back in Glasgow, we uh, we heard a, a concert. Um, father song they're called, and, and there were Chris and Michael, their faces beaming as they're singing about the glories of Christ, the wonders of the gospel from such hardened indifference. Here they are now soundly saved, rejoicing in God. How does this happen? God's word does the work despite delay. He wrote an email to me where he said this, I'm so glad that God has opened my eyes to the truth and enabled me to see just how dead my life was before. Uh, Mark Dever has a a great little book called uh, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism. And in it, he has this amazing illustration of Mr. Short, who was a New England farmer who lived to be 100 years old. And sometime in the middle of the 1700s, he was sitting in his field, reflecting on his long life, And as he did so, he recalled a sermon he had heard in Dartmouth as a boy before he sailed to America. It was a sermon that was preached by John Flavel. And as he recalled that sermon that he heard 85 years earlier, the horror of dying under the curse of God was impressed upon him. And as he meditated on the memory of that message he'd heard so long ago, he was converted to Christ. 85 years later. Isn't that amazing? Who knows when we scatter God's word in people's lives what he will do. How extraordinary. 85 years later. John Flavel knew nothing of it. I am convinced that actually we'll go to heaven and we will be stunned to discover all that God has done through our feeble witness, through our feeble attempts, through our our labors. We'll be stunned to see what he's done. We we never get to see, uh, we only get to see a part of what he achieves in his purposes. 
Now, the final reason we're tempted to doubt God's word is that sometimes his kingdom and his church just look so insignificant. This is a fine-looking group, isn't it? Truth is, many churches are, are hardly full at all, are they? Small and struggling. And the truth is, often, even our best churches, people can come along and can all look a little bit embarrassing and strange and odd. We're not that important, are we, in Edinburgh? According to most of people in Edinburgh, we're not that important. We're not that, in, uh, that significant. And sometimes God's kingdom can seem so puny, so irrelevant. A few weeks ago, Jeremy Vine uh, wrote... Uh, the, the Radio 2 presenter, he wrote that in Britain, uh, the, the, the Britain is becoming intolerant of Christianity. It is, isn't it? It's not just politely ignored now, it's disdained, and in fact it's becoming something that is a, a danger, a threat. Something you can lose your job over if you pray for someone. That's where we've got to. And, 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 and the temptation is to believe what we're hearing from others, that we're insignificant, that it's unimportant, that what's going on is puny. And we have to say, well, no. No. (sighs) Do you know the most important thing in the world today is his church. When all other things will be destroyed, the only thing left standing will be his church. This is the most significant thing. This is the most important thing. And consider the spread of Christianity in the world. It might well indeed be a puny thing in the West right now. But uh, God's people are growing and spreading and the church is growing in the, in the two-thirds world, uh, in China, in Africa, uh, in many, many places. The, the, the growth is explosive. And consider that it began with 12 men in Palestine. And consider the spread of the gospel. It's come even to Edinburgh. Even here. Amazing. Now, we must not be discouraged even when we look around and, be, and see a, a relatively small group uh, in, in the light of the many who are disinterested, we must have confidence about spreading God's word that this will be the means that God will use to grow his kingdom, to bring his kingdom in in a way that we could never imagine. When Martin Luther was asked how he achieved the huge impact of the Reformation across Europe, this is what he said. Philip and I drank the beer... And the word did it all. I think that's great. You know, Martin Luther, how did you change the whole of Europe? How did you make that change? Oh, well, we just drank the beer and God's word did the work. Now, he didn't just drink beer. He did also, you know, preach the word as well. But he said the word did the work. God's word does the work despite rejection despite delay, despite apparent insignificance. And Jesus wanted them to really get this. And so on that day, something very significant happened. Did you notice the linkage in verse 35 of Mark chapter 4? We have all the the teaching of, of these seed parables. And in verse 35, on that day, Jesus wanted to really hit it home. He spent the day teaching that his words were powerful. And then they're on a boat. And it's in a storm. And these hardened fishermen, they think they're going to die. They're certain of it. They don't think there's any hope for them. And so they cry out to Jesus, don't you care that we are, we are drowning? 
And Jesus gets up from his uh, little cushion and his sleep and, and, and stands up. And in this incredible moment where you see both his humanity as he has to sleep after an exhausting day and then his incredible deity as he stands up and with a word just says, peace, be still, and everything goes calm. And they look around each other. He, he shows them that his word is powerful. He spends the day teaching his word is powerful. And then he shows them, yes, look, this is how powerful my word is. Some people uh, use this uh, parable as a statement. Well, you know, Jesus is with you in the storms of your life, so don't be anxious. Well, I believe that God's word tells you that in other places. But really, the, point, the problem with of viewing it in that way is that by the end, they're more terrified than they were at the beginning. It's not like their anxieties are relieved. They're more terrified at the end as they look at Jesus and what he's just done. The point about this parable is look at the authority of King Jesus. Look at his power. Look at what his word can do. And so, my friends, what's the application? It doesn't need a preacher, does it, to know the application? It's right there in the text in verses 21 to 25. How do we know that we believe this? Well, if we really believe what we believe, then we'll be those who listen and use it. Look at verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. All the way through this chapter, all the way through this discourse, Jesus says this. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Have you got ears to hear this morning? How would you know? How will we know this week if you've had ears to hear? Well, then we will be those who will be using God's words. We'll be speaking his word into other people's lives, whether that's in church ministry or whether to our friends and our neighbors. We'll be using God's words. You know, if you're not a Christian here today, if you're checking out Christianity, the application is the same to you. Listen. Listen to God's word. Uh, Come along to the next Christianity Explored class. Come each Sunday. Come and hear God's word uh, preached and read to you. Get involved in small groups. Listen to the word of God. And here's my advice. If you want God to say more to you, obey what you hear. Do something with what you hear. My Christian friends, if you, if you want to hear more from God, if you want to grow in your faith, how do you do this? Well, you need to listen to God's word. Are you putting yourself in a place where you're hearing God's word? Are you unclogging your ears before you come on Sunday? Are you coming with an expectation to hear God's word? And are you, are you writing down some applications of what you're going to do with it? Are you thinking and praying on Monday morning about what you heard? Well, how can I put this into practice today? Verse 24, he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use it, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And if I want to summarize that, I would say that in this way, use it or lose it. The good soil is the one that keeps on listening, keeps on receiving, and keeps on obeying God's word. To such people, Jesus has so much more to teach. But if we repeatedly fail to listen to God's word... If we, we, if we repeatedly uh, disobey what we hear and put our hands over our ears, we will find that Jesus has less and less to say to us. We'll be amongst those who will be falling away. We'll, we'll just not see you in the chapel in six months' time because you're just disobeying God's word. Use it or lose it. 
How does the kingdom of God grow? How will this church grow? How will it have an impact uh, upon Edinburgh and throughout the world? Is it by having improved buildings? Uh, Is it by having uh, great music? Is it by having more parking? Is it by having better marketing strategies? Is it by having a dynamic and inspirational pastor? I mean, the truth is you can grow a crowd in that way. But you're not going to grow God's kingdom that way, are you? Unless God's word is being proclaimed. Because God's word does the work. Do you believe that? He who has ears to hear, let him hear.